Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode. Their regulations announced a week ago do not have, even theoretically, the possibility of restoring integrity. Looks like the regulations were made to fit the shoe. You must be 5% better than everyone else. Or you have to have the shoe. Athletes can't really speak out about this. Scientifically speaking, it, it doesn't make sense to be racing in anything else. Welcome to the Science of Sport, our second season of the Science of Sport. Now, for those of you that joined us in 2019, I'm uh, really appreciative of all the uh, comments we've had over the last uh, six months and in particular over the time that we've been off air for a while. And I do apologize for that. I know we've been uh, taking a bit of a hiatus from January. Um, we, I think we last published, I think, late December, um, our last podcast of 2019. But I've been a little bit busy at the beginning of the year. And I know Ross has been chomping at the bit to try and get uh, the podcast underway for 20. Uh, for 2020. So a lot to look forward to in 2020, of course, because we've also got the Olympic Games happening on a bit later on this year. And uh, there's the T20 cricket happening. And uh, of course, it is the start of a decade, which means always things happen at the start of a decade. (laughs) And talking of things that happen, I'm sure that all of you that have uh, clicked on the link to this podcast would have read that we are doing the the shoe that broke running episode number two, and uh, we are just a few days away um, from the announcement of Nike's new Alpha Fly. Is it the Alpha Fly Next Percent? Yeah, which yeah. is the next iteration of the initial Nike Vapor Fly. And it is causing ructions around the world of athletics. It's causing massive discussion on all the on all the um, websites around the world, and it is massively controversial. And we're going to talk about that today. And I think what we're going to do is take you through a little bit of the history of this shoe, um, why it has affected the sport so much, and then get into some of the nuts and bolts about why we're talking about what has happened in the last week um, around this particular shoe, because it is fascinating and it is something that is uh, quite worrying for the world of sport and the world of uh, athletics in particular. So Ross, just kind of give us a bit of a, a bit of a pricey as to the history of the, the vapor fly, the Nike vapor fly. When, when did this all start and kind of where have we got to now quickly? Apparently it started in 2013. I was reading something the other day in which they described the, uh, the, the beginnings of the work on this new shoe at that point. It was in 2016 that it became spoken of. Um, because that's when it was first used in competitions. It was the shoe that was promoted in conjunction with the first sub two marathon attempt. That was the one that was done in Monza, you'll recall, where Kipchoge plus Tadesi, uh, plus the third person whose name I've now forgot, Lelisa, sorry, um, tried to break two. Kipchoge got really close, and the shoe was one of the elements of that. So at that time, I'll be honest, as a scientist, it looked like marketing. Yeah. Um, because as you well, know, as a journalist, I can agree they look like marketing well, not to me just, as a journalist. Yeah, you're not just a journalist, like the editor of Runners World. So, like this is you see probably a hundred of these things a year, right? Yeah. Yeah. Every shoe company claims X, Y, Z, whether it's injury or performance, and most of the time you just say, oh, whatever, it's marketing speak, 
put it out there and let the world sort of forget about it within two weeks. This one wasn't forgettable because it seemed there was something to it. And, you know, when, they, when it came out, I remember they named it the Vaporfly 4%. And there was talk that the 4% came from some studies where they'd found that there was a 4% reduction in the oxygen cost of running. So your economy improved by 4%. And that's a big number because the day-to-day -day variation is around 1%. So when you start saying we're going to make you 4% more efficient, that's massive. I mean, 4% efficiency is the equivalent of having about 400 grams less on your feet. Yeah. <laughs> so just to conceptualize what that means. So at that point, I was like, hmm, I wonder if there's something to this, you know? And then because the sub two in Monza was so confounded by the car, the drafters, the course, the, flu the fluids and the fuels and all the stuff, it was quite difficult to assess the shoe independent of all the other things. But over the course of the next few months, it started to emerge that maybe the shoe was doing something meaningful, substantial. Yeah. And then we discovered that it had been used in the US trials. It had been used by all three medalists in the Olympic Games marathon in, in 2016 in Rio. And people started to talk. And by 2018, it was winning almost all the races. In 2019, in the build-up to London, they announced version two, which was called the Next Percent. And it was named Next because their internal studies had shown that it was better than the 4%. So now we're talking, what, 5 6%? No one was saying anymore because I think the, <laughs> the shutters had gone down. They didn't want anymore to have this conversation out there because I think they realized that it was causing controversy in the sport. Because bottom line is this, if you get 3 to 4% economy, that's worth 1% to 2% performance. And that is decisive. You're winning a marathon yeah. against an athlete who physiologically is superior to you if you get a 2 to 2.5% two performance boost. Right. And so all of a sudden people were saying, is this fair? And uh, I think the answer is clearly no. Um, but that brings us to where we are today. So 2019 was the year of the next percent. 86% of the podium spots in the major marathons were filled by next percent. 86% of the winners wore that shoe. Yeah. Uh, in the, the most remarkable one of all was in a recent Ekiden relay in Japan. Almost everyone wore it, and there were guys coming fifth who broke the re previous record that had stood for dec a decade. Yeah. And so it was clearly transformational. This was, this was not so much evolution of, of footwear. It was a revolution. And pressure was mounting to do something. And so they did not, <laughs> I guess. And that's why, that's why it's an issue now. So, so now we see version 3.0, which is actually 3.1, because when Kipchoge did eventually break the two-hour marathon last year in October, he wore version 3, which was called the Alpha Fly. Yeah. And then... These new regulations have set a limit on stack height, and we'll get into the nuts and bolts of this, at 40 millimeters, which made, I think, that shoe illegal. But Nike have just come out with an Alpha Fly Next Percent, which is legal within four days, mind you, of the policy coming out. And so here we are. And the point is, their, their regulations announced a week ago do not have, even theoretically, the possibility of restoring integrity. They look enormously uncertain. They look manipulated. I mean, I'll say from my perspective, it looks like the regulations were made to fit the shoe as, as opposed to the other way around. Mm. And I don't think that the sport is going to get any healthier as a result of these regs. 
I want to stop you there briefly because I just want to take a small step back. And I think there's a lot of people who get involved in this debate, particularly on Twitter. I know you've, you've got a big audience on Twitter and there's a lot of debates around this particular subject. But let's just clarify when we talk about the integrity of the sport based on this mechanical doping is what people are calling it. Let's take, for instance, Adidas's boost technology, which they had. So they, they produced a shoe which gave some sort of energy return and there must have been some sort of benefit for the runner that was running in. Otherwise, you know, the people wouldn't have wore it and it's done well as a brand. What's the difference between Adidas's boost technology and the technology in this Nike shoe? And where do we, where do we draw the line as to how much performance benefit is there mechanically? Yeah, so this has come up many times. That particular shoe, I've seen one study looking at, and it had, if I recall correctly, 10 or 11 guys. And they found that the running economy was improved by 1%. Now, 1% is 0% because the day-to-day variation in economy is more than 1%. So if you were to go out and run at exactly the same speed and exactly the same conditions with exactly the same shoes on five consecutive days, there would be a day-to-day up or down of more than 1%. So it's not real until it exceeds that variation. But 1% compared to what? Compared to barefoot or other competitors or... In that particular study, I think they used it because remember their premise was that this boost cushioning returned more energy. So they would have compared it to the the energy, the material in a midsole before boost, which was EVA. Right. And one of the things, in fact, about this this Nike shoe is the midsole foam is called PBAX, or they've given it their own Nike name. But it is lighter and Zoom Plus, isn't that, it? Yeah, yeah. Zoom X, I think. Yeah, Zoom X, I think. And yeah. uh, they that shoe's been shown to to return more energy even than the boost. So the, this this happens. I mean, so innovation is normal. Yeah. But the, the the difference between now and then is the scale, and the difference in scale means that it's not real when it was only one percent. This is a real significant difference. Well, it was interesting that in 2016, Cara Goucha came out and she was kind of the person, I wouldn't say blew, blew the whistle because we're not necessarily in that Nike did anything deliberately wrong here. Um, but she said there's the shoe coming out, which is going to make a significant difference and drew the RWF at the time, World Athletics now, to the to the possibility that they would might, might need to do something. So they were warned about the shoe, you know, four years ago. You know, it's, it's, yeah, been, a, it's so, been a long time. Yeah, so the best case you can, you can state from the perspective of World Athletics is that they sat on this issue for four years before they decided to act. And by the time they then acted, it was in their minds too late to put the toothpaste back in the tube. And and Co, in a, in a statement that I've no doubt was written by a, a press uh, PR person, basically said, we're not here to regulate the markets and what's already on it. Well, the only reason the shoe as of the 6th of February is out there as it is, is because you didn't regulate it from yeah. 2016. And the story there was that Goucher trained with an athlete called Shalaya Kip, who is also a PhD in exercise science, and she was involved in the testing of the Vaporfly. So Nike shipped, obviously Nike would have done their own testing, but then they sent the shoe to, to, to a lab that they obviously fund people in in Colorado, and the shoe arrives and they started calling it the magic because they <laughs> recognized, I guess, straight away that this was, this was different from anything that had yeah. been presented before in scale and concept. And so Kip told Goucher, and in response, Goucher then queried it and was told to submit a submit an official, I don't know if it's a complaint or, or objection or what you want to call it. But she did, but of course nothing happens. And so I think it's clear that the authorities knew it at that point already, but didn't do anything. And so 
then this this thing starts to gain momentum and eventually it's been used so often that it's now the shoe that's broken the women's world record, men's records at 10 and 21, and in fact the marathon, if you think the Vaporfly 4% that Kipchoge wore, various city marathon records, Olympic medals and so on. And they are, in a sense, victims of their own inactivity. Yeah. And they had you see, and that's why when we when we did the podcast last year in October, and go back and listen to it if you missed out on it, you called it the shoe that broke running. I think the authorities had the opportunity a week ago to fix what had been broken. I mean, you'll never repair what's done, gone in the past, but they had the chance and they didn't take it because, yeah. and I, I joked, I said it's the emperor's clothes of regulation because the two things they did broadly were they reminded themselves of their own rule around prototypes. Yeah. And secondly- Let's, let's that, just go back to that. So the original rule on the RWF constitution or whatever it was, that is that a shoe can't give a unfair advantage. That's kind of the sort of. I mean, it wasn't. It was. It was worded in a way that was meant to be more specific than that, but wasn't. And this this goes back. Now we can go back a decade more. Two thousand eight, Oscar Pistorius is trying to run at the able-bodied Olympics, and the IAAF says no because your blades give you an advantage. And he says no, they don't, and it becomes a, a court case at CAS, which <laughs> really you, was the precursor. You were very to vocal this. on that particular subject. Yeah, <laughs> because remember. it was so clear yeah. to me then that the the carbon fiber was was. Yeah. beneficial for running and i think that the line between where we are today is a straight one back to that i i'm pretty sure that people were looking at that and saying you know this carbon fiber thing we need to explore this because let's not forget shoe companies had tried carbon fiber before yeah but they didn't have the capacity to curve the plate and if you look at oscar pistorius or any one of those double amputees or single you'll see the curvature of that carbon fiber blade that's yeah. what it required and uh, Nike managed to do it for, for technical reasons we'll get into. But, but anyway, the IAAF then creates a, a, a single point in their regulations that says that athletes may not wear devices that provide unfair assistance. Pistorius says, no, 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 you can't add that in just for me. And the court agreed with him. So in the, in the court of arbitration decision, which eventually sided with Pistorius, they rebuked the IAAF for that policy. In response, that policy disappeared. Yeah. And so at the conclusion of the Pistorius case, regulation around shoes was zero. There was not one thing in there about it. And so there was this vacuum, which I think Nike then filled, which, and it was inevitable. Again, I, it's, it's negligent of the authorities to leave that space there. And Nike said, fine, we'll put our shoe in that space. And then in 2018, so now we're talking two years after the introduction of the prototype, uh, of the Vaporfly, I guess under some pressure, the IAAF says, actually, you know what, we do need something. So they put a policy in saying that athletes must use a shoe that is reasonably available to all. And that was their, that was their stopgap, you know, like that was the little boy who stuck his finger in the dike yeah. at that time. And that's why I laughed when I saw the policy last week, because they basically said no prototypes allowed. Well, yes, that was already your policy. You've basically just reminded yourself of what you already said you'd be doing. Yeah. And it was it was <laughs> heralded as a good step. To me, it was a non-step, emperor's clothes. Maybe it's worthwhile just also, I know you've used this analogy a lot in the past. A lot of people will say that technological, technological advancement in sport is inevitable and all sports have that, but you've used the example of, of tennis. Yeah. Um, just give us an idea of why so, the shoe is so problematic. So 
if we if we try and deconstruct sport down to its most basic element, it's that the the result has to have meaning. It has to mean something, and every sport I think decides a little bit for itself what that meaning is. So when you watch Formula One, the guy who wins the drivers championship is almost invariably in the same car that is winning the constructors championship because you understand that there's a synergy between driver and car and in actual fact the sport is a showcase for tech similarly sailing is like that the america's cup is very good sailors but unbelievably impressive boats but then on the other extreme i think running is the sport where you don't want the result to be determined by equipment. I mean, it's the one sport that's supposed to be pure. Now that doesn't mean barefoot. And I get this often from people. I think it's an unbelievably simplistic view of looking at it. They'll say, but of course innovation is improving. If you look back in the 1950s compared to now and you think about waffle soles and then air cushions and all this sort of innovation in shoes. But again, like, does anyone legitimately want to have a debate about whether Elliot Kipchoge is a better marathon runner than Jim Peters? Of course not. We know that he is because they're 60 years apart in terms of career. And so we, we accept that over time there is a creep of innovation and technology and knowledge that makes us better. But when the technology is introduced suddenly and it causes a step change, a large step change in performance, then we have a different issue. Because the fundamental principle of running is that you want to see human physiology rewarded. So I want to know that the guy who wins London or Chicago or Berlin or the Olympic marathon is physiologically the best athlete because they've got the genes, they've done the training, they've adapted to the training, they've got the tactics right, and their psychology is optimal. So they're yeah. all human elements. When you can now put a thing on your foot that changes what you get for the same human elements, that to me distorts the race result. So coming back to your question, when I'm watching the Australian Open final last weekend and it's going into a fifth set, not for a second do I think, man, I wish the Dominic team could play with Djokovic's tennis racket because then this result would be different. Similarly, yeah. if I'm ever watching boxing, and this is not common, <laughs> I'm not watching, <laughs> this weekend is Fury and Wilder, I think. I'm not watching that saying, if only boxer A was fighting with boxer B's gloves, I reckon he could have knocked him out. Yeah. That's not what that sport means. And tennis is not about who's got a better tennis racket, and running should not be about who's got a better shoe. Yeah. So why is this such a big deal? And I think non-runners maybe miss this and other people distort this. When there's a world record, or a national record, or a PB. And this doesn't apply to an elite guy running 202, it, it applies also to a guy breaking 50 minutes for a 10K. That performance is celebrated as a human breakthrough. It belongs to me. And the problem with technology and running is that it changes the relationship between the input, the physiology of the human, and what happens on the clock in a way that I think then distorts it. So we now have to recalibrate running we can't interpret a 204 marathon in the same context that we did two years, two years ago because 204 today means 207 back then. Yeah. And so I think the whole thing is, is upside down and, and mixed up. It's turbulent now, you know? It used to be quite smooth. We knew exactly what things meant. Now we don't because of something you can buy and then put on your feet and it changes the sport. And that's not what running should be. And that, that 204 
that is what well, used to be a 207 is applies to those athletes wearing that particular shoe at the moment well, exactly yeah. exactly and that was and that's been the biggest problem so the whatever light you think there is at the end of the tunnel is because you think that maybe other brands will catch up yeah and so in and this Why depends well, we'll get there when we speak to Jeff, I think, in more detail. But it depends, I think, on your level of optimism as to whether you think that this is going to happen in the next one month, six months, 12 months, two years. Yeah. Are those brands going to be able to do the same thing for their athletes that Nike has done for theirs? But for me, the governing body, World Athletics, have an obligation to ensure that meaning is defended in sport. It's literally the only thing that the governing body has to do. Yeah. is facilitate events and ensure that the results have meaning. That's why, and this is going like really high level, that's why men and women compete separately. Because if they didn't, women's results would have no meaning. That's why we don't let 25-year-olds play against 16-year-olds because we have age separation so that there's meaning. Yeah. It's why Paralympic categories exist because otherwise we'd be comparing a person with severe cerebral palsy to someone with mild cerebral palsy. So we create boundaries to give meaning to results. World Athletics had one job, and that's to ensure meaning in its results. They haven't done it for the last four years. They had a chance to do it moving forward, and for various reasons that we'll explore in the rest of this pod, they haven't done it now. And so I don't think running is going to change for the better in the next 12 months to 24 months, personally. Well, let's let's take the, 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 the next step in this evolution. What, what, broadly speaking, well, not broadly, actually, specifically, what the regulations say that were released last week by World Athletics? What did they say about the shoe tech? What, what are the restrictions and the guidelines? So, so for road shoes, the prototype issue, and again, as I said, that to me is the same thing it was before, except they've provided a bit of clarity around the time frame. In other words, you can't have a prototype shoe in a competitive race. You it has to be freely up, available. You can't show up at the start line of uh, London or Chicago in a shoe that's not on sale to all, either online or in stores. That's right. basically their wording. And why it has why is that important? Have, and it has to have been on sale for four months. Okay. Why is that important? That's important because they don't want shoes that have never been seen before with the capacity to create performance advantages and undermine integrity to be debuted without some oversight, I guess. And also anybody can buy them. So if you're, if you're an athlete, you can purchase them. You don't, you don't have to be sponsored them. Yes, in theory, you can. Um, yeah. I think in the real world, if you understand the commercial model that underpins running is really there's one category of sponsor and it's apparel manufacturers and it's mostly shoes. If you are an athlete who's getting $50,000 a year from uh, New Balance, Saucony, Brooks, whatever it is, Asics, Adidas. Do you do you want your athletes to choose to go against their contracts to buy and run in a different shoe? That's that's another issue. But yeah, people, I think people simplistically say, well, at least now they can all go to the shop and buy their own shoes and, and race equally. I don't think that that's the case anyway because of responders, non-responders. That's another issue. But yes, the prototype rule has now been clarified and they've, they've promised us, pinky swore, that they are going to enforce it uh, in the future. And then the second category of changes is that they've put in together, they've put in a, a, a list of technical specs around the makeup of the shoe. And the main one, the most striking one is that they've limited the stack height to 40 millimeters. So this is the height of the shoe basically. And you can see this in the midsole. This is what uh, Jeff Burns, who was our guest in part one of the shoe that broke running suggested. He and uh, a student of mine, a uh, former student of mine, Nick Tam, 
wrote a piece in the British Journal of Sports Medicine in which they first suggested that idea. And it turns out that that's what they've done, except they've drawn that line at 40 millimeters. Um, other, other modifications are that they've said that you can have a single carbon fiber plate, or if there are more than one plates, they have to be on the same plane. They can't be staggered or stacked or overlapping. So there's a few technical specs there. Um, but the main one really is that they've allowed carbon fiber and they've allowed the thickness of the shoe, which to me is the source of the problem. In my opinion, the problem that developed between 2016 and 2020 could have been dealt with completely if they had reduced the stack height down to say 20 millimeters. And the problem is, um, as a deviation slightly here, when you give an engineer 40 millimeters of space to work inside, he can do all kinds of things with that carbon fiber plate and the foam. And so the, the, the key that unlocked this breakthrough really was, as I mentioned earlier, the ability to curve that plate. Because flat plates don't achieve the same performance benefits as a curved plate. But they couldn't curve the plate in the past because they didn't have the space to work in. So if you think of the midsole of a shoe almost as the scaffolding, the, the thicker it is, the more scaffolding you have, the more you can curve that plate. And that's really what I think they managed to do. And that's why, in my opinion, I was disappointed with the, the regulations that came out because 40 millimeters does not take the root cause of the issue away. I felt that they could have gone to 20 millimeters or better solution would have been to look back over the last 30 years of marathons and tested to say, what is the typical stack height of a racing shoe from let's say 1990 to 2016. And then just set the limit at that point. Yeah. And then let people innovate in that space. If that, if it's 20 millimeters or 17 millimeters, fine. Go nuts inside a 17 millimeter space. Then you don't have to worry about prototypes. You don't have to worry about uh, carbon fiber plates because there's no room to put all these gimmicks in. So I think that they really missed an opportunity to do a simple and effective thing that would have restored the integrity of competition results. Whereas in, what they've done now is they've created more uncertainty and made it clumsier and less transparent, I think, than it was before. Yeah, what's interesting is that obviously a lot of the shoe brands have responded. You know, Brooks have brought out a, a shoe with a carbon plate. I know New Balance have brought one out. Asics have brought out all sorts of different shoes. So there is obviously a big rush to get this technology going and they will have to be in within that sort of new rules. But What's fascinating, and I think Amby Burfoot, who is one of the probably the most respected voice in road running in the States, he's a longtime editor of Runners World magazine in, in the States, um, actually tweeted a tweet, and I think you might even have it on your phone, who kind of alluded to the fact that Nike released this new shoe, which is completely compliant, um, just four days after World Athletics had announced these rules. <laughs> so yeah, maybe you want to so, re just read the, the, the tweet. So, so they either got unbelievably lucky, right? Because who would have thought it'd be 40 millimeters? Yeah. I, th I think actually it was really obvious what they were going to do. Um, because as I said, they had an opportunity to fix it. Yeah. But they were never going to do it because it would have it would have made the two shoes, you know, if they'd set that limit to 20 millimeters, the, those two shoes, the Vaporfly and the Next Percent were gone. And there's no way they were going to do that. Nike's influence is too strong in the sport for them to do that. And, and so my, I remember writing two weeks ago, a prediction was that they'd set it at around 40 to 45, because that would allow the shoes that had been used to continue and, and yeah. uh, they would have satisfied Nike. So then they come out and they say 40 millimeters. So that's a, that's a correct prediction. And then Amy Burford says, let's see. First, actually, he, a couple of days before the decision comes out, he says, 
If you were king, what would your rule be? He says a midsole height should be set at whatever Koskai's shoes were when she broke the world record. And he thought that was 36 millimeters. So then they come out and so Nike Next had a midsole thickness of 36 to 37. World Athletics announced a new rule at 40. Why? Like, yeah. Why go for, Why yeah. give them four millimeters more than anything out there anyway? Especially when it's open to abuse at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why higher than Costco's world record shoe, Amby asks. Then Nike announced the new AlphaFly Next Percent at 39.5. Oh, now I get it, is what Amby wrote. And that's exactly what it is. So they've either been unbelievably lucky or they knew, <laughs> they knew exactly what was happening. And that's why I said it seems to me that there's as much chance that these regulations were written to fit the shoe then the shoe was writ- was made to fit the regulations. I mean, this is quite a serious, if this is true, and obviously we, we need to make sure that this story is followed up. I'm sure there's a lot of journalists who are looking into the story, but it, it, is, a, it is a very serious matter that if Nike have had the, the sort of the short conversation with, with World Athletics and Seb Coe, they've got the, the heads up ahead of the announcement and essentially they've been given the, the, the whole shot into that technological gaps because it's going to take a long time for the other brands to be able to catch up to Nike. So this year's Olympic Games is almost inevitably going to be dominated in the distance events by not only the Nike shoe in the marathon distance, but also in the in the sprint distances as well. They brought out a new spike, which is again controversial. Yeah, in the way we, we haven't even got to that. But just just on this, I mean, this coincidence of the the new Alpha Fly Next Percent being exactly at the limit set by Athletics is too coincidental to be to be left alone. So Sean Engel from the Guardian contacted them and he asked them about it and. World Athletics insisted that they had not spoken to Nike specifically in giving them a warning. So a World Athletics spokesman told The Guardian, we spoke to several shoe companies, including Nike, a few days before we released our new regulations to let them know what we were planning. But that was the extent of it. So if you believe that, then you believe that Nike just got really lucky at 40 millimeters. And you know what, and then, tonight when I get home, I'm putting my child's tooth underneath the pillow because there's definitely a tooth fairy. <laughs> and then the other thing, the other thing the spokesman says is the working group created the rules based on what was already available. Well, that's the whole problem here. Like you guys sat for Oof. four years and let things become available and then tell everyone, poor us, we couldn't change what was already available. The whole problem had developed because they didn't do anything when they should have. Yeah. And now they're saying we can't do anything. It's, it's just unbelievably poor, weak, flaccid, impotent leadership in my opinion. And that 40 millimeters, and this is, we, we get into a conversation with, with Jeff, I, I guess. I mean, the thing is, anybody more. listening to this podcast, and please engage with us on Twitter and tell us if we're missing something here, because when I read that response from World Athletics, the timeline suggests that it is impossible for Nike to produce the shoe even a couple of weeks in advance of this, this announcement. And if they did, they were extremely lucky. It, it, just, it doesn't make sense that there wasn't some form of collusion. And I, I, don't, I don't want to use that word because there might be some libel cases, but it just it just seems like it was, as you said, the, the shoe, the regulations have been built to fit the shoe rather than the other way around. That's what it looks like. And, yeah, and I mean, sure. But even, even if it's not, and even if you want to believe that <sighs> this is whiter than snow, and I don't, and I don't believe that because, heck, this is sports governance and we all know what that's like. Um, the problem is that at 40 millimeters, you've now got a market for shoes that other companies have to respond to. Yeah. Because now you've codified that performance enhancement through footwear is a thing. And you've got all the patents to go with it. Well, Nike's got the patents, yeah. right? Yeah. The, the, so World Athletics has codified and formalized the arms race, the shoe race. Let's Sorry, oh, it's such an obvious pun. Um, 
So every company now has to say, right, let's let's invest, let's go for this. The legs they, race. They're going to come up. They're going to come up against a couple of things. Number one is patents, because there are certain things they won't be able to do. And so one of the big questions to look out for now is whether it's possible to create the same performance enhancement without violating a patent. Now, are there two ways to skin a cat? Are there two ways to make a runner propel forward with less energy cost? So some companies are going to be creative. Like I know that one of them has got two plates, but on the same plane. Another company has got a plate that spans three quarters of the shoe, not the full length. So this is how they're sidestepping the patents. The question remains is, does that sidestep compromise the effectiveness of the shoe? Yes or no? Because if it does, then this separation between haves and have-nots doesn't get different. It might get smaller, but it's not going to disappear, right? So Nike will always have a 1% to 2% head start because of legal matters. So lawyers will probably decide medals going forward in the, in, in the immediate short-term to, me, uh, short to medium-term future. Even bigger than that, in my opinion, is that even if all the other companies match Nike's advances, you've still got a shoe that in studies has been found to improve performance in some people by 6% and in other people by none at all. Yeah. Now, responders, non-responders is a thing to everything in the world. Aspirin, you and I could take the same number of aspirins for a headache and we get different effects. Shoes is no different. So we know that people who put on the same pair of shoes might see slightly different responses. But the bigger the effect of the shoe gets, the bigger the response range will be. Makes sense, right? Yeah. Because if the average is 1%, then your outlier gets one and a half, two, and your non-person gets zero. If the average is 5%, 6%, now your outlier's got 10. Yeah. And your non-responder's got naught. And that difference means that, you know, we always used to look at runners and say, that guy there, that champion marathon runner, that's VO2 max, that's lung capacity, that's heart, muscles, economy, lactate threshold. In the future, given this policy, it'll be about saying, that guy there, he's great because he responds really well to shoes. Yeah. That's what that's what we've created running to be now is a is a is a sport where your capacity to get the benefit of your equipment makes a bigger difference than your physiology. Yeah. And that's not running. So if you, if there was one word to describe that it, it, to describe this whole scenario it's all it's about integrity really isn't yeah, it? And that's exactly. what it is. It, it, if you boil it all the way down it's about integrity. Exactly. That's yeah. what it is. And, and, you know, there's different degrees to which you can take the integrity out of something. When you've got three athletes in a race wearing a shoe 4% better than everyone else, there's zero integrity. Yeah. That was the Olympic Games in 2016. Because there were three guys there. And, and so, so that was the US Olympic trials in 2016. That's why Gaucho was, was so unhappy about that. Because you know, that, that's, that's the difference between going to your final Olympic Games and watching it on, on the television. So then you've got zero. At least, and I'm trying to find a silver lining, at least now we've got the prospect of some integrity. But it's not going to be there. Like, and this policy cannot achieve what its intention should be. Again, what should the intention of this policy be? To reestablish meaning in the results of running events. Can it achieve that? No, because it's murky, uncertain, inherently will never create parity because of responders, non-responders, inaccessible. I mean, just think about, think about how this percolates down the system yeah. from school to college to professional ranks. If you don't have a shoe, you are 5% behind 
your rivals at school level, yeah. which means that to be noticed, you must be 5% better than everyone else or you have to have the shoe. That's not... I'm sorry, that's just not it's a barrier. Drumming. It's a barrier to entry exactly. for some athletes. And that's, yeah. what, that's what swimming considered when they banned their swimsuits, which is the best, most recent example of this happening, is this distortion of physiology determining the result as opposed to equipment. Equipment starts to make a bigger difference to the outcome than the human does, and you have to then get rid of it. And they didn't do it. In fact, they formalized a process by which it can never happen. Right, so time to welcome our special guest onto our podcast today, Jeffrey Burns, who is a biomechanist all the way from the University of Michigan. And I know that uh, Jeffrey is uh, sitting in very cold, wintry, snowy conditions in Michigan as we talk to him, as we sit in 28 degrees Celsius with air conditioning. But uh, Jeffrey, I mean, it's been a massive couple of months, but probably an even bigger last week in the world of uh, biomechanics and sport over this whole shoe debate. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Yeah, it, um, things, <laughs> things escalated quickly <laughs> in the last week. Tell us, a little, tell us a little bit about, from your perspective, um, we've kind of given a bit of a price here as to how things happened and the, everything from 2016. But now in the last week, we've seen the new regulations. We've seen Nike coincidentally just bringing out a shoe that matches those regulations almost perfectly. Um, what, what is your sort of broad strokes view of the, of the shoe um, and, and the happenings of the last couple of days with, with the regulations? Um, so... Yeah, it's, it was really a lot to take in at once because at first pass, you know, last week we had the regulations come out and um, my first thought was that the they seemed sensible, like a good compromise to include all the production models that we have out there. They capped it, you know, 40 millimeters. Um, and my thought was that's because that's what the upper spectrum of vapor flies fall under. Um, that's kind of where it was. I had, you know, we can get into this later, but I had a couple initial reactions that I didn't, wasn't, um, would have tweaked with the rules the way they were worded. But then the spike rules kind of smelled a little funny to me because that 30 millimeters on a spike is so much more than any conventional production spike right now. So I saw that and that was like, wow, that definitely leaves a lot of space. And, you know, the elephant just waiting right outside the room is the, you know, Nike spikes that we saw last year in Doha. Might I suggest um, so that the, uh, the elephant wrote the regulations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, like it was right there and, and it seems kind of like it's, um, was, uh, you know, ushering those in and, and so kind of balancing those two left me scratching my head a little bit, but on the whole, I thought the road racing shoes was, was kind of in the spirit of, preserving what was what was out and we even saw it was interesting we even saw comments from sebastian coach something to the effect of we couldn't expect to you know feasibly roll back production models right now um in time for the olympics and so this was an effort to leave it at that and so when i saw that and that was like the day that that the 
regulations were released. I thought that's what the spirit of the rules were. And then little did we know what was in store. Um, you know, was it a couple of days ago? Now the alpha fly comes out and, and really bucks that. And you could see that there is clearly, clearly some space left to be there. And now we're left scratching our heads. Again. I mean, just, just um, you and I have discussed over the last week since the regs were announced and you say that the, the compromise seemed sensible and that they couldn't intervene on what was already available. Don't you think that's, that's giving them a lot of leeway given that their inaction in the first place allowed the market to, t- market to take on the shape that it's got today and then they decided not to intervene. So effectively they were complicit in its generation and then in its continuation. There's no reason at all that they could have made that stack height limit lower. And what would the downside of that really have been other than to take away the thing that's hurt the integrity of the sport in the last three years? So, so my, I, I mean, I, I agree that, it, that they, they could have taken that, that tact of being much stricter and just axing it there and making it lower. But the way I interpreted it, perhaps optimistically, was that this was, this was, you know, if we can think of if, of this thing like a ball rolling down the hill, this was stopping the ball <laughs> in time for the Olympics because we had we had you know Alex Hutchinson um, made a good point when he he had interviewed Reed Coolset who was trying to qualify for the Olympics made the point that he um, was going to try and qualify with these shoes because we've had two years of people meeting qualification standards in these shoes. So, like you said, it's this they it's this quagmire that they got themselves into and to cap it right now and then prevent other people from, you know, whether it's meeting the qualification standards or something for the Olympics would be unfair to those people who are trying to do it now in the shoes. And again, it's not right, but perhaps it's the best tact for a couple months until the Olympics. So that's where I was thinking of it like, okay, this caps it where we're at now. In a, and we have a frame, this is the important thing, is they laid out a framework for the rule, which we never had in the past. Um, so we have a framework, cap it now, don't let it evolve any further. And then, again, the optimist in me thinking, then we can go back and revisit it after the Olympics and tighten it up in perpetuity. Um, and that way, being fair to the people have gotten where they are, as well as you know, allowing ourselves to move forward with it, um, I mean, I a hundred percent agree with you that, that they, that they're in a mess of their own making. Um, and it's going to be getting, getting out of it. It's going to be painful. Um, it's just, you know, do they want it to be painful long-term or do they want it to be painful short-term, you know? Mm. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. So when you see the, when you see the alpha fly, and I mean, we're going to get on, I think to lots of specifics so that we can tap your biomechanics expertise in particular when you see the alpha fly next percent announced the other day and it's it's a hair's width under the limit and it's got this air part in the front does that make you think that the regulations needed to be tighter or is this the inevitable consequence and we can now expect all the other brands to imitate over the next six to six to twelve months um so i my this this there are a couple points to be made about this. I think one, the regulations, I, I mean, again, my personal preference with the regulations is that we would make it as, as close to what conventional racing flats used to be because as we discussed last time, 
the less and less and less real estate that you allow, the less and less and less, you know, really deviant um, advancements in, in, you know, uh, beneficial technology that you can fit in that space, essentially. Yeah, um, scaffold, yeah. So the tighter that you make it, the less of an effect it can have. With the alpha fly, it actually speaks to my first criticism of the rule as it's written. Um, when I first read it, and there is the line when they were talking about how it will deviate from, um, I don't know, I don't have the rule right here with me, I can pull it up, but it's something to the effect of, of marginal increases in soil thickness across heights. Like we'll measure it at an EU 42, there will be marginal increases with like larger shoes. And when I saw that, I just like face palm, marginal increases, no, like you need to have operational concrete rhetoric yeah. and words. It's a regulation. Again, like the, you know, the old regulations and many of the current ones are still written like loopholes, not like actual regulations. Like they're just these fuzzy words that you can dance around. And so to say that the height, the thickness would, would increase marginally with the length of the shoe. It's like, no, you need, if I was writing the rule specifically, would have written some sort of length to height, you know, relation. We have, we have, you know, if you look at all of the, the field event implements, you have diameters based on shot put weight, you know, discus weights, the, the different dimensions of them, they scale. Shoes, for anybody who's spent time, you know, whether it's around a, a large size run of running shoes, shoes scale with length. Um, the thickness of them. So yeah. So so just so if I can just interrupt you there because I think this is a technical point that the listeners will enjoy because you covered it in part one. Is that stack height is important because a it provides the the scaffolding you called it real estate to do the fancy things inside of. But the other interesting thing you you introduced us to last time was that when you lengthen the le- length of the well, sorry let me try that again when you increase the length of the leg then you create all by itself a performance benefit. And you're saying that that is disproportionately large for a shorter athlete and potentially one with a smaller foot. So when you don't have a, a height that is in comparison or relative to the length of the shoe, then you end up distorting this benefit as well, yes? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it, it's, a, it's a disproportional increase in the effective leg length of the runner. Um, and then moreover, on top of that, you can think of it from a purely mechanical standpoint too of that foam is, again, this gets back to the idea, all shoes are springs, things that, you know, they just work to different efficiencies. If we're storing and releasing strain energy in that spring, the amount of strain energy that you can store and release is proportional to the length of the spring. So a 20 millimeter, 30 millimeter, 40 millimeter spring, that amount of absolute strain energy that's increased, that's stored and released in like, you know, scales with the length of that. Um, so, you know, you have like, like I said, that needs to be scaled by the length of the shoe. And that, again, that was something that in the, in the, the proposal, especially, you know, the one that we wrote in BJSM didn't get into the technical details of that. Cause that was, um, you know, more introducing the the, con- the general concept of this. My my hope was that like somebody sitting down to pen this rule would would recognize that, but um, you know, maybe not. Out of, out of interest, <laughs> really not. Did, did anyone 
did anyone making this rule consult with you or any other biomechanist that you know to get input on these specific things, just out of curiosity? So I, I never heard from, from World Athletics. Um, they, you know, I had only heard that they had two biomechanists on the committee, but I had never heard that who they actually were. Um, okay. uh, yeah, no, no word. But even then, that that is to me that's that's a that's may, maybe a biomechanist would understand that. But but I guess a lot of biomechanists perhaps aren't aren't tuned like they could understand that theoretical maybe side of it, but aren't tuned necessarily to the specifics of shoe manufacturing. Maybe would overlook that. Um, like I said, if you like. You know, when, when I was in high school and, and college, I worked in a running shoe store, um, so spent a lot of time with footwear. But it is, it's, it's I, you know, shoes scale, I think, on the order. It depends, shoe to shoe to shoe, and, and you would have to, again, they had industry people on the committee, so they could have easily consulted this, or at least from what I hear. Um, but it's around, you know, a U.S. size, about a millimeter a size, it would scale um, the thickness of the shoe. And again, that'll that'll change shoe to shoe, but is that's a general trend that I would say, which would hold, which is about maybe half a millimeter per U size. Um, so, so yeah, so that's broadly speaking, that was one of the first things that jumped out to me was like allowing that tolerance by saying we will allow marginal increases in sole thickness based on longer shoes. I saw that I'm like, if you are giving that to a company that, you know, or a person like people who have a reputation of walking up to the line and leaning over it as far as they possibly can. Um, you know, this essentially doesn't give them a line. It gives them like an enormous prairie to go walk in and dance around. Yeah. Um, and so that, that to me was, was the thing that I saw and was like, again, the optimist in me was like, ah, maybe, maybe we won't have to deal with this this time around. Um, and okay. you know, we'll, this okay. will get tightened up later. And then tell, sure enough, yeah. like five days, five days later, they, it was just massive, you know, they, they made a show of it. Um, so yeah, I can tell yeah. that you, I can tell that you're trying hard to be the optimist and to bring that side of you out. But the, the cynic in me says, give it time. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, what's well, interesting, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but I, I've seen, I saw a video of you when the, I think it was late last year, did a video on, on the Wall Street Journal, I think it was, or some sort of website where, where you were talking, they were asking you about your recommendations and you you mentioned the 40 millimeter um, heel as, as a kind of a, a number. Was that mm -hmm. was that really what you kind of put out there? I mean, it's kind of ironic that they've gone that way, but is that a sort of a standard number that people in your profession thought would be an ideal heel height? Well, we use that because that's, like I said, that's what the upper spectrum of the vapor, like the upper size runs of the vapor ply. So if we think of um, uh, like U.S. <laughs> US sizes are, you know, 12, 13, 14 um, are the highest ones. What that translates to EU um, is that 45. Uh, is that like 46, 47, yeah. 48. Um, anyways, that's what the, the up, like the hot, the largest models of the vapor fly will, will be right around 40 millimeters. Yeah. So that's what I thought yeah. it, it would be. Yeah, now we're seeing the, the, upper, the, the highest thickness of the alpha fly is probably going to be like 48, 49 um, on those. So, 
Yeah. yeah. I know we're going to get into some of the technical side of things as well, but I've just got one other question, and I'm just interested to hear from you as an elite athlete yourself. Obviously, you've done a many ultra-distance events. How does this feel yeah. for you as an athlete with what's going on? I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if you're sponsored by a particular brand, but if you're not sponsored by Nike, what do you think the athletes feel about this, and what do you think the general consensus is amongst competitive athletes? You know, this is actually one of the most fascinating things about this whole debate um, and that I I would love to have a consortium of, of athletes like speaking anonymously off the record, both Nike athletes and non-Nike athletes, because one of the things that's, mo that's made this most challenging is that athletes can't really speak out about this and they're the ones, you know, directly participating. So I, I used to have a, a shoe sponsorship. I was sponsored by Ultra Running. A L T R A, um, yep. and I and I recently for I've foregone that sponsorship for kind of personal and scientific reasons, independent of the shoe issue, um, but more more so because I feel like I identify I I strongly identify with being kind of an independent runner, and it's also I think important as a scientist, especially if I'm going to be involved in these conversations, um, for the athletes that are sponsored by you know other companies and especially especially when you're looking at the elite road racing scene um it's it's a really challenging place and i think that they were left in kind of with with the new regulation a spot of thinking like okay we've got shoes coming out that that might be close that get us there we can deal with this and then i think this wave this might this might be a tipping point um and, and this is something I want to get to maybe later in the conversation about the, the effect of this. But for athletes, it's it's definitely I, I look at it now as somebody who is an athlete outside the, the spectrum of shoe sponsorship. And I think like scientifically speaking, it, it doesn't make sense to be racing in anything else. Um, it's it's really sad to say that, but it but it's it's the reality of the shoes. Um, and I also think from the standpoint of you know, if you are a top level Nike athlete right now, and, and I mean, when I say top level, I mean, this is even just maybe only a handful of their world-class athletes where they can modify some features of the shoe to the specific athlete. Other than that, it's just one shoe that you have to adapt to or, and work with, you know, which again, I, is something that me personally as an athlete, I haven't, um, I haven't, I've, I've been in the shoe, but I haven't done a lot of like faster work in it or anything like that, um, let alone racing it yet. And I look at it and I'm like, I'm, I don't even know if it'll work, you know, mechanically, you know, how I will interact with the shoe. And if that's the only option for a faster racing shoe for a lot of athletes, that's challenging. Um, but then it gets back to the sponsorship side too. And the athletes from the other brands, the thing that is not being had in this conversation right now is the voice of all the professional athletes out there that aren't part of this because they're in a they're in a catch 22 they can't they can't they can't voice their real opinions because to do so would be to come at the detriment of their own brand it would be talking negatively about their own footwear yeah um yeah. you know the the sponsor that pays them but they but then it also flips it because then they can't also express their real feelings about this subject to the authorities and the fans and the broader sport. Um, so I think, I think that is, that's a, that's a piece that's really missing from this conversation. And moreover, 
we also don't get to hear the real insight from Nike athletes. You know, they they obviously have to essentially toe the company company line. Um, there may be some that you know there are a, a lot that love it and embrace it, but maybe there are some that don't don't think it has a place or that think it's gone too far. Would be totally okay with rolling you know regulations back, but they can't say that. Yeah, I think the, the I think the problem is that if you speak against it, you're labeled disgruntled, jealous, unhappy loser, and if you speak for it, then you're assigned the alternative label, and that eventually means that athletes can't speak only outsiders, but outsiders by nature have less credibility in some of the things you need to hear about. So I think it has been a a shame. And again, I mean, you spoke a little bit about who was on that panel in the process. I think that they, they could have worked harder to get that voice out anonymously so there's a few flaws there for sure definitely in the process i think i mean i i, I know we can't canvas every single non-nike athlete but it, i kind of feel that if you were non-nike athletes and you couldn't wear nike shoes and as you said it's the preferential shoe it make, makes sense to always wear that if you if you can all those athletes who can't wear their shoes going basically we're screwed is it as simple as that um i mean i <laughs> I can't, I can't tell you what's going on inside their head. Um, I mean, I could tell you what was going on inside my head when I, when I looked at it, like pragmatically was, yeah, that shoe's way better. Like it's that it, you're at a huge disadvantage. You're spotting these people. I mean, I, so I, I had this case like personally, um, at the world championships in the hundred K two years ago, guys, you know, I was fifth place and four of the five guys in front of me were in the vapor fly. And, you know, I look at that and that's over a hundred K that's, you know, general, you know, generously five, speaking, five probably minutes, yeah. six, seven minutes, mm. um, maybe more. Um, yeah. and so I look at it and it was, that's the reality is like spotting those people that time. And I, you know, the flip side of it that, that you, you know, you deal with as an athlete is like, you still, you're racing in the shoes that you most fundamentally enjoy the sport in. And so you, you have that and it, it's, you know, I, I, this is, this will get into like something that will probably peak, peak a lot of people, but you know, it's almost like the same conversation that, uh, like you hear, you know, clean athletes will always say this when they know that they're on the line against athletes who are using drugs is like, at the end of the day, this is for me. So it's like the, the athletes are kind of relegated to that. And that, that's not to say that athletes in the shoes are breaking the rule um, like that. But the idea that it's like, well, maybe then at the end of the day, the thing you're holding on to is just that you're doing the performance that is in the spirit of the sport, you know, to which you identify with. Yeah. So, so, uh, so, so on that, I mean, let's talk about the regs as they are now. This the 7th yeah. of Feb. And we've got these regulations and we are now anticipating that half a dozen companies are in a position to at least make their first response. And then mm -hmm. in theory, moving forward, they can make their next responses. Although the timeframes given to us by World Athletics mean that won't affect the Olympic Games. But in your perception, how close do you think other brands are to bridging that gap even partly as opposed to fully? Um, I can't imagine i when i i saw the first iterations of the shoes that i've seen from i think the brands let's see it looks like adidas sockney new balance and brooks all definitely have ones that i'm aware of um 
those iterations that I've seen, I, I looked at them and thought, like, I, like based on the foams and the, the plates in the shoes, my impressions were that they maybe got halfway there, you know, to the original Vaporfly. Yeah, which is, <laughs> which alone, is three years than, ago. Okay, so let, the next percent, the next percent is, is, you know, presumably better than the Vaporfly a little bit. And then the Alpha Fly is, is, you know, it seems like it's quite a bit better than those. So it seems like they're now, you know, they may now be back to being three, four percent, you know, percentage points behind on that front compared to that. Um, and, and I'll give you the, my rationale for, for saying that is you look at, I think it's, it's helpful. We don't have any laboratory tests on these shoes. All we have is, is reviews from, of course, the, the athletes who are, you know, towing the, their company line that says, oh yeah, this shoe's great, blah, blah, blah. Um, I will say to Sockney, to Sockney's credit, they did, um, Jared Ward yeah. did one of the, um, he did one of the replications. He studies yeah, on Hunter, uh, Hunter the, B- Ward, the BYU lab. Yeah. He's with Sockney. And so I imagine he was testing his shoes against the Vaporfly and perhaps he was happy with how close they got. Um, I'm still not entirely convinced that they are quite as good and certainly probably not as good as the next percent in the, the newest iterations. But getting back to why I was thinking that, the, I think it's helpful to first look at the materials in the shoes. Um, they, I think the Saucony one is like half PBAX and half TPU. Um, not sure about the formulation of, of PBAX, but that's one of the one of the defining features of shoes that helps it harness the energy return. It's heavier than the Vaporfly, which would make me yeah. skeptical. Yeah. Um, I think the Brooks shoe is EVA based, which which would give me great pause. Um, the one that I'm I'm very curious about that we actually haven't seen anything with yet, except um, a few pictures, is Adidas. Adidas has one coming out that we I think will be quite thick that um, is supposed to not I, I don't I don't know if it even uses plates, but it has a, some sort of rigid rigid structure yeah, i'm not sure that um, it's uh, i'm not sure that it's compliant with the policy because it, it it might use more than one plate or different shapes or something so this is an un, unknown question but yeah I've, I've seen i've seen that shoe that was the shoe that was used in houston recently no um similar to it yeah, yeah. and i think yeah. they've they've actually further iterated on that one that was in houston that it looks like it looks like they're finally playing around with kind of some new you know, new copolymers as well, like whether it's whether it's PBAX or something similar. Um, so that 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 could be a response. Um, but again, my this is this is one of the things that speaks to the broader challenge of this is one of the beautiful things about the Vaporfly was that we had we had several really really high quality laboratory studies done on these. Like that that first Colorado study was a you know a dream of of scientific control of shoe comparisons we we probably you know we in the history of biomechanics like to have that explicit and well controlled of a study is very novel (laughs) um we don't get that with shoes very often and then we had that replicated um across other other studies we're not going to get that for each one of these new shoes so we'll never know um, we probably won't even, you know, we might not even get studies done on these new shoes, let alone repeated studies, let alone well-controlled 
you know, crossover studies like that. Um, so that's what, that's one of the things that gives me. Sorry, like, Jeff, why, only, yeah. why do you say we won't get studies like that? I would imagine that there'd be a dozen universities around the world who would be absolutely desperate to get their hands on, you know, 10 pairs of the, the, the Brooks or the Saucony or the, Asi, uh, the Adidas, the Asics one, and then do those studies. Cause they're not, they're not that difficult studies to do, you know? Some of the mechanical stuff with the intron and so forth, yes, but the, certainly at the most basic level, measuring oxygen consumption. I mean, you could you could do that in a week. Well, um, I will I will say to the credit of um, because because these changes are so noisy, you need to do robust, repeated testing. So you look at like the Colorado study, for example. You know, they did it at four speeds. And they did a randomized mirrored crossover of all those shoes. So they're essentially doing six trials in each shoe in 20 runners or 18 runners. I think they had 18 or 19, six trials in each shoe at each speed. So that's 24 trials per athlete. Um, so that suddenly you start doing that and that's, you know, four visits to the lab. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of testing. Mm. Um, and, yeah, you could, you know, you could, assuming you can recruit the, the subjects, you could do, you could do the actual testing in a couple of weeks. Um, but then it gets back to, you know, whether it's getting the shoes and, and you know, prioritizing that with, with resources. That's like the study that we all want to do. But again, it gets back to the funding and whatnot um, yeah. to do that. And well, if it's the shoe companies that put it up, that's, you know, again, the, uh, the optimist in me thinks like, well, maybe that's great. Maybe now shoe companies will say like, yeah, we'll, we'll fund these studies at universities, give you size runs and do the comparison. But on the flip side, you know, someone like Nike, you know, perhaps probably only funded that study because they knew, you know, they knew how good this shoe was. And oh, so they yeah. were like, yeah, yeah, let's do this awesome, robust study because we know it's gonna it's gonna squash everything. Yeah, um, just to I mean, you, you know, we want it to be independent. Um, yeah, you, if, that, you do uh, that with, if you do that with Sockney and ask us to compare that to the Vaporfly, I don't know if you're gonna see the results that you want to see. So, yeah, like you heard yeah. that uh, you heard that interview with uh, Kip on Let's Run, and she said that when that shoe arrived at them, it already had a reputation as a three percent shoe. So, whatever internal um, testing we done, they knew that, and then they called it the magic. So. I agree, but let's let's put it out there because uh, I know some people listen to this podcast. If you happen to have a supply of shoes and you would like them to be tested, Jeff is your man. Email me, send us, drop, find Jeff on Twitter or find me on Twitter and send Jeff your shoes. I'll consult. You do the study. It'll be great fun because I do think it, it is interesting to see what other shoes are able to do. If we go on from that and we talk about the regs a little bit more, I know that you raised a few issues around implementation. And in fact... When we last spoke in part one, my theory was that you could ban the carbon fiber plates and you persuaded me that you don't need to do that as long as you keep the stack height low enough. They haven't kept mm -hmm. the stack height low enough, so we are going to have carbon fiber plates and they've created all these policies around the stacking and the overlap and the shape and so on. How are they going to implement this? I that that was the other thing that I was I was hoping we would talk about today because that was when I was it, reading that and I saw the rules on the carbon fiber plate I was like you know I I don't think this is necessary moreover I don't know if I even care about that aspect of the rule so much because again I talked about this last time I'm like I'm very much of the opinion if you're gonna have something on your foot like and you want to put some construction in it like okay whatever 
but the act like act, actually litigating and regulating those the or you know enforcing those regulations are going to be a nightmare um i don't know how they're going to do it you know i guess they say that the shoes need to be sent to world athletics for compliance or you know approval um maybe they'll maybe they'll cut the shoes up but that 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 is that's the ideal case that I mean, clearly clearly that's not followed that used to be that rule interestingly that rule was in that was in the rule book in 2016 and 17 all competition all types of competition shoes must be sent to the IAAF for approval clearly that was like you know not only did Nike not follow that but i mean sure i'm sure every no brand followed yeah, for that sure. um so so anyways so we could it's clear it's clear that you could put something in a shoe wear the shoe and have them never know um it's i mean I, it's such a silly rule it's funny it's like there is the rule too that like plates have to be if there if there are multiple plates they have to be in the same plane yeah. something similar i was thinking comically like if something were to happen your vaporfly plate were to break because the plate curves down it's not in the same plane so a broken vaporfly is actually out of regulation um yeah. <laughs> like just such silly rules so, um because yeah you, so you can again, my, my thing with the midsole height regulation was like if you if you if you set that restrictive enough or to something reasonable like all, none of that really matters yeah exactly um, yeah that, i mean that's just more space we afford now the more the more the more you can do yeah that's certainly i mean that when we spoke as i said you persuaded me of that and i think that they could have solved two problems at the same time they would have they would have alleviated the implementation issue and they would have created a, a, a policy or a framework that would have been more effective in curbing the performance enhancement available because at the moment like so carbon is radiolucent yes if i've used the word correctly in other words it doesn't show up on an x-ray so x-ray exactly. is not enough and i mean seriously how many races are going to x-ray the shoes so you need mris or you need a hacksaw and a pair of honest eyes yeah and or so, ct you could do it with a ct scan uh, <laughs> even, marginally cheaper than an mri <laughs> even cheaper so I, you can almost envisage a situation where you've got to hand your shoes into a box and pee into a cup so you've got a doping problem and a shoe problem and you've got two two moving parts and every time there's a there's a result that needs to be questioned we now have to ask was he wearing compliant shoes and was his blood compliant with the law that's 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 messy i, d I just think it's so unnecessarily complicated next I, point I yeah the more it's 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 really the more the more and more that equipment plays a role more and more baggage it brings with it yeah exactly and then the next thing is and i saw you tweeted this i think overnight a link to an article on swimsuits back in the day and how it affected NCAA. Talk a little yeah. bit about some of the concerns and the issues facing shoes as you disseminate or percolate the issue down from the elite to the sub-elite into colleges and schools and so on. Yeah, so this is this is what's going to be, you know, we're going to see this. We just saw that I think we saw the tip of the iceberg last year um, when the you know, last year was the first year that the next percent really became the Vaporfly became widely available. Right. Like yeah. it was before that it was it was pretty hard to get pairs of the Vaporfly 4 percent. And we, we saw it start to trickle down into college ranks. Now, this year, you know, then we saw it at the Hakone Akaden in Japan, which yep. if your listeners don't know that similar similar to university sports in the US you know 
Japan has the very vibrant road racing scene and one of the biggest sport, sporting events on their sporting calendar is this road relay of universities. And much like in the NCAA, they have big lucrative sponsors with equipment manufacturers. So it's Adidas, Asics, Nike, Mizuno. Um, last year in 2018, you start to see the vapor fly creep in. And then this year, literally every team is something like 85 plus percent of runners, no matter what sponsorship were wearing the vapor fly. So the team that won was an Adidas sponsored team all 10 of the runners were wearing the vapor fly. So we look at the NCAA in the US and we know that this shoe makes a substantial difference, you know, at speeds that these guys are racing at 10K. So, and girls. So the, what was actually one of the really cool replication studies that was done was at uh, Grand Valley State and they compared the vapor fly to the Nike Matumbo racing spike. So a track spike that's conventionally used to distance racing there's a 3% benefit from the 4%, um, the, the vapor fly to the, to the Nike track spike. So we look at that in the context of the 10K. So now we're gonna see a lot of guys racing in this shoe on the track, but that gets back to this question of access and availability. We have, you know, big division. So in, in again, in, in the US, a lot of the division one schools, the biggest universities, have sponsor have equipment sponsorships. So whether it's Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, they have contractual obligations to this to these brands. Um, then you get down to the other you know divisions, the lower levels, Division Two, II, Division Three. They might not even have equipment sponsorships, and they might have to buy their own gear. So now we actually have two questions of access. One at the top level, athletes are bound for the school that they choose to the footwear that they have to race in. And then at the very low level, you have college kids who might, you know, some might be able to afford it and some might not. So if we look at that very top level and the access, if you're in Adidas school and you're not allowed to race in these shoes, you, you are at a competitive disadvantage. I know like Michigan, we're a Nike school. I know our 10K guys are going to be racing in the Vaporfly on the track. You know, I look at one of the powerhouse distance running schools in the U.S., Northern Arizona University, and I look at them, they're an Adidas school, and I'm like, man, are you guys you know, what are you gonna, are you gonna be racing in the 10K? Cause that's the other thing that it gets back to is it's advantageous in a 10,000 meters. It could, you know, again, at the collegiate level, their 10,000 meter pace is slower than, you know, or from the same speed as elite marathon pace. So clearly the vapor fly is well-tuned to it for that speed. If that's gonna make 30 seconds difference 10K, that's mind-blowingly huge. Last year, the winner, the winner of the men's 10,000 meter, um, Clayton Young from BYU, was wearing the vapor fly. The winner of the men's division two was wearing the vapor fly. Yeah, so, but of course, of course, he won't. He, he won't need to this time because the IWF World Athletics, in their wisdom, have approved a spike with a 30 millimeter uh, midsole, which will be worn by everyone. So they'll be in spikes. They won't need to wear road shoes, and they'll obliterate records anyway. Yes. Well, that's actually one of the interesting things is that that's 30 millimeters for spike shoes, but you could still wear racing flats on the track yeah. and that, and be, you know, the alpha fly. You could theoretically wear the alpha fly on the track because it doesn't have spikes. So, so I guess yeah, what I was getting at, I was sort of segueing towards the spike conversation because a lot of people's yeah. eyebrows went up, like you said yours did, because you can, 
you can understand. I mean, I, I understand, though I disagree with the 40 millimeter limits. But the 30 millimeter limit that they've imposed for spikes doesn't seem to have any real basis other than to allow Nike to continue doing what they seem to have seeded in Doha. So those who don't know, in Doha, and it, there was a lot of confusion about this because it sounds as though there were two different versions of that spike. Sifan Hassan used it. Laura Muir was alleged to have used one, but maybe a different version. So no one really knows what was going on. But now World Athletics has effectively opened the door to that spike being used regularly. Um, so maybe we can just speculate a little bit about that. I know you were circumspect about the benefit of that shoe. My, my view was the performances we saw from athletes in that spike in, Do uh, in Doha were either doped or mechanically aided. <laughs> How do you feel about the spike future? <laughs> Both. <laughs> um, no, no, I certainly think the spike, the spike by, by its, from what I can glean from its construction, I can certainly see how it's advantageous. I don't, I don't suspect it's on the order of what the Vaporfly is compared to road racing shoes, but compared, compared to conventional spikes, I could certainly see how it could be a few percentage points, you know, an advantage. And if you're looking at one to two seconds over 1500, that's enormous. Like, like at an elite level, that's huge. Um, and so I, yeah, I strongly, I, I very much of the opinion that, not opinion, but um, yeah, very much of the disposition that those spikes are beneficial. Um, and it just, the, the underlying question to all of this is like, what, to what extent are we okay with that? Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know what, what more to say on that. It's, it's really, it's really the same it's the same mechanical concepts as as the shoes just to a lesser degree you have if you're putting an air an air bladder underneath the forefoot of the spike and more foam underneath the heel if that is you know again extending the effective leg length of the runner by even a centimeter or so um with something that is does it in a very very same almost nearly mass neutral way and that it's ultra lightweight extension of that you now have that kind of synthetic extension that stores and returns energy extremely well that now gives yeah that could that could provide that mechanical advantage um you know what's one of the things that's interesting about those spikes and again it's it's hard to glean what's um what might be going on with them without holding on to them but those those air bladders you know, one of the things that's written into the, the patents on them is that they there's a, a range of pressures to which the bladders will be. And that really sparked my interest because I was thinking now, I'm like, you could pressurize these anywhere from, I think they specify, I can't remember if it's like 15 pascals or kilopascals to 25. And I was like, wow, you know what's really interesting about that? And this is fascinating from a mechanical standpoint. I, like, I, I don't know if this has a role in competition, but from a mechanical side, this is fascinating. You could you could tune those bladders to different events, to different, because um, different events, you have different contact times and contact frequencies, your foot strike. Those bladders, the stiffness and res, um, the, the stiffness of the bladder under compression could be modulated with the pressure of it. Um, not to say you could change it on the spot, but you could make different spikes with different bladders mm. 
tuned to different speeds and, and forces that you're striking the ground. And I was like, that's actually fascinating from a standpoint of like, a, you know, being equipment and athlete specific yeah. or, or so, event and athlete specific. How, how does all this sit with you? Because if someone, if someone tuned into this podcast, like in the last 15 seconds and heard you talking about this, they'd say, oh, how did I land up on a motorsports discussion? Yeah. <laughs> um, so how does this sit with you? as a runner slash biomechanist, if you can even differentiate those two things that you are. Because, and I've said this many times and I've said it for years, I'm very uncomfortable with the situation. You've said a few times, it's like, do we have to just decide if we are okay with that, uh, this degree of enhancement? I'm just curious on your philosophical views. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I, as a scientist, like, am fascinated by these developments that we've had. Um, but my personal disposition is that it doesn't have a place in, in competitive sport. Um, as a runner, I, you know, it's not, it's not the sport that I identify with. It's, a, it's not a direction that I, it's, it, you know, it's making, it's making me fall out of love, um, with the sport. Um, but what I get back to is, is I don't, I, you know, I recognize that that is, that's a spectrum. Um, cause the fundamental philosophical question that we get back to is equipment plays a role in our performances to some extent, you know, shoes, you know, we, again, we are not running barefoot, we have shoes, but to what extent is that? a role. And my feeling is I, I like to minimize that as much, you know, as reasonable. So as to distill what I do as an act yeah. in exercise of my physiology, the scientific side, I love, I like this. It, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating, um, just time to see what, what, you know, what we can do with locomotion and, and changing the body. But I think it's very much like, you know, you have bikes and, and, you know, aerodynamic configurations that you can make, you can make a two wheel, two wheeled self-powered craft go crazy, go crazy fast. And that's super fascinating to tweak that and do that. But they're not, you know, we're not going to have those seated bikes and these carbon fiber shells in time trials in the Tour de France. Right. There is a point where you draw that line between what, what, what is what is the sporting context and what is um, you know engineering. And I think to me the fundamental this is this is the fundamental fundamental question is when you cross the finish line and you look at the clock, to what extent do you want the number on that clock to be a feat of engineering? Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and again, that, that, that number, that extent is not zero for us right now. Again, we're not, again, we're not running barefoot, but I think that there's a point where it can be minimal and within the spirit of, you know, the, the pillars on which the sport has been filled. And even the last century, we've worn shoes by and large since, you know, since the modern Olympic games. And so I, I think, if we keep footwear in the spirit of what it was, we can keep that, that number, you know, as minimal as reasonably possible. And that's 
purpose of making regulations in sport. The more and more that equipment plays the role, the more and more that number on that clock is no longer, you know, is not just a feat of physiology, it's a feat of engineering. And I, I say that as an engineer, like, you know, like my, those are what my, my bachelor's and master's degree. And I worked as a professional engineer for many years. And to me, it's like, sport is the beautiful thing that is, that is removed from that. Um, you know, I love, I'm, I'm a scientist to explore the human body and to tinker with these things. But I think the fundamental appeal to me when I got into running as a young kid was just that, that, that clarity, that, that experimental truth and clarity that I had of what I was doing physiologically, seeing the, the, the outputs come, um, you know, being able to conduct those experiments on myself with equipment that it's, you know, from an experimental design standpoint, equipment is a, a confounding variable. Um, I always say like, I think doping to me, drugs and doping in sport is so egregious because races and race results and performances are, they are data, right? They're, they're beautiful data that we have. They're trials run, they're experiments conducted, comparisons made. Doping is data falsification. And I think that the equipment that we're seeing now is maybe it's there, it's confounding factors. It's a confounding variable in our data, right? So now, now our beautiful experiments that we're having play out, whether it's between two people or even within ourselves are becoming noisier and noisier. And we don't necessarily, it's really hard to understand how to, how to correct for those, those, those confounding variables. Um, and, and that's, what's so difficult again. So the scientist in me is fascinated by it, but, but I am, you know, I'm, I don't know if I'm a runner because I'm a scientist or if I'm a scientist because I'm a runner. They're, they're, two inextricably intertwined things. I think all runners are scientists to some extent um, and are drawn to that appeal of those, you know, experiments that they conduct on themselves, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. And again, this gets back to that idea of this is disrupting those experiments in an, in an uncomfortable way. But speaking more broadly, that idea of, you know, to what extent do we want that to be a feat of engineering? Some people are excited and invigorated by that now confounding variable that we've we've added, and I, you know, I can't speak I can't speak for them, and I and I'm not I'm not going to make the claim that I feel the way that everybody feels because I know, like I said, it exists on a spectrum. My suspicion is, and this, you know, this gets back to actually, this is why. We didn't get into this to my thoughts on the alpha fly, but I'll give you my thoughts on the alpha fly when I saw it come out. I was really happy about it. I'm, I'm really happy that, that that shoe was released because I think it forces the issue on the sport now in a way that the previous regulation danced around it. So the pre, the, the regular, not the previous regulation, the regulation as I, as I, thought it was a week ago, um, that put a pause on everything and capped the shoes at what it was. And it kind of created this uncomfortable stasis that, um, again, this was something Alex Hutchinson mentioned in his, his piece. It was like this compromise. And we, that was kind of what we called for in the BJSM piece was a compromise. It left, it was almost like it left everybody a little unhappy. Um, and it kind of left this, this large space of equipment still in the room 
um, and you know, okayed it on all sides, the alpha fly pushes the issue on the athletes and on the fans and makes it makes it absolutely obvious the yeah. you know the effect that it will have and the role that it's playing. And I think it'll force the sport and the fans to make a dis- to make a more concrete decision. And my suspicion is it'll cause the entire ecosystem of the sport, not just, you know, the athletes in in themselves self-regulating or the technology self-regulating within athletes of reaching a stasis, but I think it'll cause the broader ecosystem of the athletes and the fans to, to give it the thumbs up or thumbs down. And my, again, my suspicion, my disposition of not, of, of not liking that level of performance enhancement coming from equipment, my, my suspicion is that the majority of fans feel the same way. And what that regulation will look like will be fans kicking back on it, losing interest in the sport, journalists writing about this, qualifying all performances, talking about the technology. It will, it will, my suspicion is it will dilute it and it will, it'll bring it into painful relief. These feelings that we have of like, I don't know what I'm seeing here. This is not interesting anymore. This is not the distillation of human performance. Um, and so I think, I think the, the, the shoes will force the issue and really, really cause us, cause the, you know, those sides to, um, come out and world athletics to acknowledge it. Yeah. I was equally happy because, um, I think the alpha fly showed up the ludicrousness of the situation and revealed the rules for what they were, which was nothing. Jeff Burns, thank you very much for your time. It's been absolutely wonderful having you on. It's such passion that you talk about the subjects, and I know it comes from that scientific passion, also from the running passion. So thank you very much for your – and you can follow Jeffrey on Twitter. It's Jeffrey Burns. It's not – there's no underscores or seven O's at the end of it. It's Jeffrey Burns, and uh, you can follow his uh, thinking on this very topical um, subject. Last word from you, Ross. Uh, where does the future – what's the future looking like in the next year post-Olympics uh, for this controversy? I think it looks like 2019 because I think everything's just shifted one notch to the right because they've enabled Nike to continue to do what they were doing. They were ahead. They've enforced or ensured that other companies will have to respond. So I think everyone just moves one degree or 1%, let's call it, faster. But the the have versus have nots thing doesn't go away. And I think it's ultimately quite sad. And I mean, Jeff alluded to this. The, the fundamental problem is that we can't evaluate what we see. So when Kipchoge breaks a world record, when Bekele scares the world record to within two seconds, when the Olympic title is won this year, when the London Marathon record is broken, the world record will fall again in the next 12 to 18 months, maybe two or three times because of shoes. We will not be able to properly evaluate what it is. And I think that that's actually quite sad because it was one of the fundamental things that we loved about running is evaluating what we saw, evaluating ourselves. And I think Jeff put it really well is, To what extent does that clock reflect a human achievement as opposed to an engineering breakthrough? And right now, we don't know the answer. And that's a real real pity, and it's not going away. Don't forget, you can interact with us on Twitter at SportsSciPod. And, of course, with uh, Professor Ross Tucker and Jeffrey Burns, as we've just spoken about. Let us know what you think about our podcast, about this controversy. We'll be watching it and probably updating a number of podcasts in the next few months around the subject. It's a big one. It's going to be a lot of debate still to come. And we hope it's resolved to the satisfaction of everybody, if it ever is. Thanks so much, Ross and Jeff, for joining us. And we'll speak to you next time.
follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 